welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we continue our tribute to a giant of faith, Billy Graham. Mr. Graham was reared on a dairy farm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Growing up during the Depression, he learned the value of hard work on the family farm. But he also found time to spend many hours in the hayloft reading books on a wide variety of subjects. In the fall of 1934, at the age of 15, Billy Graham made a personal commitment to Christ through the ministry of Mordecai Ham, a traveling evangelist who visited Charlotte for a series of revival meetings. The message of this sermon series is, God so loved the world. There are thousands of people here tonight that have burdens that need to be lifted and problems that need to be solved and sin that needs to be forgiven. And thousands of you stand at the crossroads of your life. And this is an hour of decision for you. You must face yourself and your relationship to God, and you must face it squarely. And you must decide before you leave here what you're going to do about that relationship. Because you have the power of choice. And the choice is up to you. So you listen tonight. Not only with your physical ears, but also the ears of your spirit. Because while I'm speaking, you're going to be conscious of another voice speaking. And that other voice will be the Spirit of God. Our Father, we believe that Thou hast prepared certain people here tonight for this hour. And we pray that all of those whom Thou hast chosen in Christ will surrender to the wooing of the Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now tonight, I want you to turn with me to the most familiar passage in all the Bible. And you don't really need to turn at all, because all of you know it. It's a passage of Scripture that I learned while my mother was giving me a bath in a tin tub when I was five years of age on a Saturday night. And as she was scrubbing my ears and my neck, she taught me this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 16. I want to see if we can all say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now in this passage, it says, for God so loved. But I can hear skeptics coming back and saying, if God loves, why is there so much disease and poverty and hate? and war, and loneliness, and boredom, and psychological problems. Why does the world have to suffer generation after generation if God is a God of love? 
If God is a God of love and all-powerful, why doesn't God come and stop it all and clean up the mess that the world has gotten itself into? I want to answer that question tonight. And I want you to listen very carefully because it's one of the great questions that disturb people all over the world. And it's a question that university students constantly are asking. Now, the first thing that this text says is for God. You see, we have a misunderstanding of God. Most of us have a caricature of God. We have created a God in our own thinking and in our own imagination, and it's not the true God as revealed in the Bible at all. So we are actually idolatrous. We are worshiping false gods. Each of us has an idea of what God is like. And it may be different from what the other person thinks. And it's certainly different from what the Bible teaches. Now, of course, to begin with, I have to admit that you cannot scientifically prove the existence of God. You cannot scientifically in a laboratory prove God. How do I know that God exists? I see abundant evidence of the existence of God everywhere. In the universe, I sense God in my heart. It is instinctive to believe in God. Man all over the world is worshiping some sort of a God. We are worshiping creatures and we cannot get away from it. I know there's a God because of my own personal experience. I never have a doubt about it even though I cannot ultimately demonstrate it in a laboratory. Now, one of your great philosophers said, God can be proven philosophically. Certainly, most of us here tonight believe that there is a God. Now, what kind of a God is it? The Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that he is the creator. The Bible never tries to prove the existence of God. The Bible assumes the existence of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth, says Psalm 33, 6. God is the creator of the entire universe. Secondly, the Bible teaches, Jesus taught, that God is a spirit. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, what is a spirit? Well, a spirit doesn't have a body like yours or mine. Because if God had a body, he would be limited to one place at one time. But because he's a spirit, he can fill all the universe at the same time. He can be in China. He can be in America. He can be in Europe. He can be in Britain all at the same time. He is a spirit. Now, the Bible also teaches that God is an unchanging God. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I change not. James 1, 17, in him there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You and I change. We may think that God changes to accommodate himself to our 20th century thinking, but God has never changed. He is the same. A thousand years ago, as he is today, and a thousand years from now, he will still be the same. He hasn't changed in the slightest. 
The Bible also teaches that God is a holy God. Leviticus 19.2 I, the Lord your God, am a holy God. Psalm 145 The Lord is righteous in all of His ways and holy in all His works. Habakkuk 1.13 Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look upon iniquity. You'll never understand the Bible. You'll never understand the Old Testament and all the sacrifices in the Jewish religion unless you understand one thing. God is a holy and a righteous God, and God hates sin. God hates moral evil because He is absolute holiness. He is absolute purity. He is absolute righteousness. The Bible also teaches that God is a God of judgment. Ecclesiastes 12.4 God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Matthew 11, Jesus said, It shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Jesus said, Every word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Acts 17, the apostle Paul said, he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Romans 2, 5. But after thy hardness of heart, you treasure up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day coming when every secret thought will be revealed. Your thoughts, your motives, your intents, as well as your deeds will be brought into the open before a holy and a righteous God whom the Bible says is a judge. But the Bible also teaches that God is a God of love. 1 John 4, 8, for God is love. Jeremiah 31, 3, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Malachi 1, 2, I've loved you, saith the Lord. Ephesians 2, 4. God who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. God loves you. God loves the world. God is love. Now, that's the reason that God created man and put him on this planet. Have you ever wondered why we're here? Have you ever wondered why God created the human race? Well, the reason is God is love. And he wanted some other creatures made in his image that he could love, but who would choose to return that love to him. That's the reason he created man. Many students ask the question, who am I? I'll tell you who you are. You're an individual, important to God, created by God, for fellowship with God. And when God created you, He gave you a will of your own. You have the right of moral choice. Now, if you say that man is only an animal, that he's only physical, he's only material, he's not worth very much. Do you know what your body really is? You have enough fat in your body to make seven bars of soap. You have enough sugar in your body to sweeten ten cups of tea. And I've had about that many tonight. 
You have enough lime in your body to whitewash a chicken coop. You, do you call chicken coops over here chicken coops? That's what we call them. You have enough phosphorus to make 2,000 matches, enough potassium to explode a toy cannon, enough sulfur to rid your dog of fleas if he's not too big a dog, and enough water to take a bath in. Now, in American money, that's worth about $4. I, I should say that's about 30 shillings. That's how much you're worth. And so Mr. 30 Shillings walks down the street saying how important he is. Now, the thing that makes you important, ladies and gentlemen, is not the physical. It's the fact that you are a living soul. You're a spirit created in the image of God. That's the thing that makes you important. And Jesus said, you're worth more than the whole material world to God. What shall it profit a man? Jesus said, if you gain the whole world and lost your soul. Suppose you became the greatest star, the greatest actress, the wealthiest man, the most powerful man. You had it all, but lost your soul. Jesus said, it would be a very poor bargain. You see, the part of you that we cannot see on the outside, called spirit, that part of you is created in the image of God. And the Bible says that that part of you is going to live on forever and ever and ever and ever. The real you. Now, if we could be here, let's say, a hundred years from now, a hundred and twenty years from now, to take in the babies that may be here, that might live a long time, and all of you could come back to this stadium 120 years from now. Every one of us would be skeletons. And there's a church in Rome, some of you have been there, where the monks and the people that have gone before are all skeletons and even have their robes on standing around. And you walk in and sit down and you're conscious of the great crisis of death and how temporary this life is. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. If you're only material, only an animal, a hundred years from now you'll be only a skeleton. But you're more than that. There is eternity. There is the future. Because you were created in the image of God. Now God gave man a choice. God said, if you love me, and obey me, and serve me, and obey moral law, we'll build a wonderful world together. You'll be happy. You'll have paradise. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God gave man a moral choice. And God stood back to see what man, this creature, created in his image with the power of choice, would do. And for a while, God and man were friends. They built their world. It was a wonderful world. You see, there were no jails. There were no police forces. There were no armies. There were no battles. There was nobody hating each other. There was no disease and no poverty, and nobody ever died. What a wonderful world it was to be. 
But man one day decided he didn't need God. He decided he could get along without God. So man deliberately broke God's moral law and rebelled against God. Now, God said, if you do that, you're going to suffer and die. And now for thousands of years, man has been suffering and dying as a result of rebellion against God. And that rebellion is called in the Bible, sin. And the Bible says, because we're all sons of Adam, we are born with a tendency towards sin. We are born with the disease of sin. It's a spiritual disease. It affects your mind. It affects your will. It affects your conscience. It affects every phase of your life. And we're all sinners according to the Bible. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's the reason that we have war and crime and broken homes and fraud and jails and police forces and wars and all the rest of it. Because man is a sinner. He has a disease. He cannot solve his problems alone. That's the reason every generation fights it out. That's the reason that wars continue. The Bible says, 1 John 3, 4, sin is a transgression of moral law. Genesis 6, 12, all flesh hath corrupted its way upon the earth. David said, they're all gone aside. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Solomon said, there is no man that sinneth not. You and I are sinners. We've broken God's law. We have a tendency to lie. We have a tendency to steal. We have a tendency to lust. We have all the capacities of hate and prejudice. Now, that doesn't mean you're a wicked person. That doesn't mean that in the sight of your fellow man that you're a bad person. You may be a good moral person. But you see, sin is coming short of God's holiness and God's requirement. So in the sight of God, we're all sinners. So that the problem in the world tonight is a heart problem. Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and thefts and false witnesses and blasphemies. Now God said there's a penalty. You've broken the law. You have to pay for it. God is a holy God. He can't go back on his word. He can't just come along in his moral universe and pat you on the back and say you're forgiven. I'll accept you as a sinner. Somebody has to pay. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are alienated from God. We are separated from God. And that separation is called by Jesus hell. Hell in this life, spiritual death here, and spiritual death in the life to come, separation from God. Now, there are three kinds of death spoken of in the Bible. There's natural death. We know that everybody dies. Great men like Sir Winston Churchill, we watched his funeral and wished that somehow we could call him back 
We need his greatness and his wisdom as we needed it during the dark days of the war. We need great men like Adlai Stevenson, who dropped dead on a London street. We need some of the great men of the past to come and help us now. But they're dead. And so will you die. That's natural death. But then there's spiritual death. And there are many thousands of people listening to my voice tonight. You're alive physically, but your spirit is dead toward God. And that's the reason you haven't found happiness and joy and peace and satisfaction and fulfillment in your life. That's the reason you may make a million dollars and not find peace. That's the reason that you may rise to the top of the show world and not find peace. You're always searching and always questing for something to give you satisfaction, but you don't find it. Why? Because you were made for God. And without God, without God, you cannot find peace. And you cannot find fulfillment. And many of you try in many different directions. Sex experience. Dope. Alcohol. All kinds of escapisms. And finally, some people go ahead and commit suicide. Even in affluent societies. And their suicide rate is the highest in those countries that are the wealthiest. Why? Because wealth and affluency does not satisfy the deepest longings of man. You never find them outside of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But this text that we took tonight says God so loved the world in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our sins, in spite of our failures. God says, I love you. I love you. I want to help you. I want to save you. What could God do? One day I was walking along the road with my little boy. We stepped on an anthill killed a lot of ants, wounded a lot of others, tore down their little house we didn't mean to. And we stopped for a moment. And I said to my little boy, son, how would you like to become an ant and go down and help them rebuild their houses and help them bury their dead and help their wounded? He said, Daddy, that'd be wonderful, but, but we can't do it. We're too big, they're too little. I said, I know. But I said, one day God looked from heaven and from his great universe and saw this little planet swinging into space, lost and separated from him. And God decided to do something that astounded the angels, that astounded the principalities and powers and even the stars, it says, sang. God decided to become a man. And that's who Jesus Christ was. God coming in the form of a man to say, 
to all of us, I love you. I love you. I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to change you. I'm willing to save you. And he came for the express purpose of not only teaching, not only did he come to tell us great and wonderful things, but he came to die. He said, for this reason was I born. He came to go to the cross. And he was slain before the foundation of the world. The plan of redemption was in God's mind. And how could he do it? How could he save you? You've rebelled against him. You deserve death. How could he save me? I've rebelled against him. I deserve death. I deserve judgment. I deserve hell. How could he save me? And still be just and holy and righteous. Only one way. Either you have to pay for your own sins or somebody else had to pay for it. And do you know what God did? God, in a mysterious way that none of us understands, God, in the person of his Son, went to the cross, died there, and took your sins and my sins. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, Ye have made him to be sin for us. Isaiah 53, 6, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 2, 24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. On that cross, when he bowed his head and said, It's finished. The plan of redemption was complete. He did it. He accomplished what you and I couldn't do. Now God says, because he died, I can forgive you. And God tonight offers you pardon for all your past sins, all your present sins, all your future sins. A pardon, forgiveness, not because you deserve it, but because of what he did. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You cannot work your way. You could not pay enough money to get to heaven. But it's free. Free to you. But it costs God his son on the cross. But that's not the end of the story. On the third day, when he was lying in a tomb, he was raised from the dead. Now is Christ risen from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ Jesus shall all be made alive. Christ is now living. I am not preaching to you a dead Christ. I am not preaching to you a Christ on a cross. Our salvation was accomplished by the cross. That is true. But he's a living Savior, a living Christ, ready to come into your home, into your life, into your heart, and change and transform you tonight and help you face the crisis and the problems of your life 
here and now and give you eternal life. It's all yours. But that's not the end of the story. The Bible says that this living Christ is coming back. And the hope of the world, ladies and gentlemen, is the glorious future reign of the Prince of Peace. Then shall the world know peace. Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, says the Scriptures. There's going to be a resurrection of all of those in the past that have believed in Him. There's going to be a time when we're reunited with Him and we're going to reign with Him. And there is going to be peace. There is going to be utopia. There is coming paradise. It won't come by our efforts alone. It's going to come by the direct intervention of God when he puts Christ on the throne. Now, what does God want you to do? What do you have to do? God has done all of that for you because he loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever. Have you ever had your name in a newspaper? Well, you're in the news tonight. Because you are that whosoever. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What does God require you to do? Two things. First, you must repent of your sins. Jesus said, repent ye for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, Except you repent, you shall perish. Now, what does repentance mean? What do you have to do to repent? First, you have to acknowledge that you've sinned against God. You have to confess that. Now, that's not easy to do, because we don't like to say, I'm wrong, I've sinned. We have too much pride for that. But that's what God requires. You must admit your sin, and you must be willing to turn from your sin. That's repentance. It means to change. You change your mind about God. You change your mind about self. You change your mind about your neighbor. You're willing to love your neighbor. You're willing to love God. You're willing to live under the disciplines of Christ. That's repentance. You admit that you've sinned. You're sorry that you've sinned. And you're willing to turn from sin. That's repentance. And Jesus said, except you repent, you will perish. And the second thing, you must believe. You must receive by faith Jesus Christ. The Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. 
To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Now, what does that word faith mean? It means commitment, surrender. I give myself to Christ. I receive his offer of love. I receive his mercy. I receive his pardon. Just as though I would offer you this book, it's not yours till you receive it. You must receive God's love and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And what a wonderful thing this forgiveness is. It's different than yours and mine. His forgiveness means that God puts all your sins behind his back. You see, there are no yesterdays. You cannot relive one hour ago. God says, I forget your sins of yesterday. I bury them in the depths of the sea. They're gone forever. And even God cannot see them nor find them when it's in Jesus Christ. Will you receive him tonight? Will you accept him? I'm going to ask you to do it. This is the most important moment in your life. You may never have an hour like this when you're so close to the kingdom of God. Will you receive him? Now, there are three things you can do. Three alternatives. Listen. You can reject Christ. You can reject God's offer of love and mercy. And if you do, you'll be like the rich young ruler who rejected, and the Bible says he turned away grieved, sorrowful. That must have been an emotional moment. A psychologist could do a great deal with that word, grieved. Or, secondly, you can neglect Christ, like Felix, who said, when I have a more convenient season, I will call, but he didn't. You see, you can only come when God the Father draws you by the Holy Spirit. And God is speaking to you tonight. He's giving you a chance. He's giving you a moment in history to receive him. Millions of people around the world have prayed for this moment tonight. And God is speaking to you. Agrippa said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. Some of you are almost in the kingdom. I'm asking you tonight to take that step into the kingdom. Your third alternative is to accept. As the Philippian jailer accepted that night long ago in Philippi, when he said, what must I do to be saved? And the apostle Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And that night he believed and that night he entered the kingdom of God. The Ethiopian nobleman that Philip was talking to said, what hinders me? And Philip said, nothing if thou believest with all thine heart. And he said, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. You can accept like thousands, tens of thousands of people throughout Britain during this past month have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior and would tell you tonight that he lives in their heart. That can be your experience tonight and you can go home 
to live a new life. Now there's a third thing. You must be willing to serve Christ and follow Christ and live for Christ in your situation, in your home, in your business, in your shop, in your school even if it means that they laugh at you and call you strange names, even if it means you lose some friends temporarily, but you'll gain others, I assure you, it may mean that you suffer a certain amount of persecution. But you're willing to do it, to have your sins forgiven and live a new life. Now, you may be a member of the church. You might have been baptized or confirmed, but you're not sure really that Christ is in your heart that you've really surrendered to him when you were confirmed, you weren't quite sure what you were doing. Come and renew your vow of confirmation tonight and make sure and make certain you may not have any religious background whatsoever. You may be Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish, or Muslim, or Buddhist, or no religion, and you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and trust Him and Him alone for your salvation, I ask you to come and receive Him tonight. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.